state, and so they're quarantining for a couple weeks. Uh, so I know that many people are still joining us via live stream, but it's good to be gathered together to worship the Lord. Just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, the first is that uh, we are having our child care again. Uh, so the nursery is open from zero to three. Uh, so we have that open again, and we're taking precautions to make sure that kids are, are staying safe and checking temperatures uh, before they go in. Uh, just as a precaution. And then the other announcement is that uh, that men's Bible study is resuming again uh, on Saturdays uh, from, uh, sorry, Eric, please you remind me, it's at 7, 7.30 to 9 a.m. and studying the book of James, and this will be uh, via Zoom. So if you have any questions, please see uh, Eric Pigman or, or Jeff Remmers, and that'll be starting the 19th, September 19th. So uh, so yeah, so please, if, you have, if you have any questions about that, please see Eric, uh, and he'll be glad to answer those questions for you. There is a booklet, uh, and he can tell you about that, that you have to purchase beforehand that you'll be studying through. So, so that's the announcements I have. Uh, let me uh, turn it over to, uh, uh, to Devin, and we will open up with a call to worship, and then worship the Lord through some songs. Please stand for our call to worship. Our call to worship comes from Isaiah 53 this morning. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors. As we see this image of our beautiful Savior, let's sing this song about him as the man of sorrows.
praise the Lord. He is alive. And what a foretaste of deliverance and how unwavering I hope. And Christ in power resurrected as will we reflect upon our glorious Savior and all that he did to bring us home. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's first praise him for this wonderful and glorious gospel. Heavenly Father, you are the divine architect, not only of all creation, but also the divine architect of the gospel the means of our reconciliation with you, the means of our salvation. So we thank you, Lord, for revealing this wondrous mystery through this cross. We praise you and worship you, Lord, for giving us your Son who died for us so that we might be saved, so that we might be spared, so that we may be able to spend eternity with you. Such a precious gift that we could never earn on our own. Father, we pray that you would make us a church that is bold in the proclamation of the gospel. We pray for the same boldness that the apostles prayed and received in the book of Acts. We pray, Lord, that you would make us stewards wonderful stewards, faithful stewards of the gospel. Make us into faithful ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would also center our lives, center our church on the gospel. Lord, we pray for those in our church who are sick and suffering, Lord. We pray that you would give them hope that only comes through the gospel. And we know that the that the gospel doesn't alleviate all the suffering and distress and the anxiety that there is in this life, but it does promise us of an eternal life where there will be no more distress or disease or anxieties or worries or, or even any sorrow or pain. So we pray that you would give our brothers and sisters the hope that comes with that gospel, the guarantee of that future eternal reality that awaits us all. We pray specifically for dear brother Jay, and we pray that you would help him to recover from his back injuries. We pray for our brother Lloyd Wood, and we pray that you would encourage him in this time, and that you would graciously also provide a way and a means for him to have the surgery that he so desperately needs. Father, we pray... For Edward and Emily Brake, as they continue to minister to students of the campus of UNH, we pray for the grace and the wisdom that they need to minister and to proclaim the gospel in these difficult times, especially as they are having to do so uh, via a screen. Would you help them 
to be stewards of the gospel through these challenges and help them to sow these seeds of the gospel to many students, Lord, and that you would water those seeds and cause them to grow. And we pray for the salvation of many students on the UNH campus. Heavenly Father, we pray for Durham Evangelical Church. We pray that the saints would be centered in the gospel. We pray for the proclamation of the gospel each and every week. And we pray for the saints, Lord, that they may continue to live out the gospel week in and week out, day in and day out in their contacts, Lord, around their neighborhoods. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray specifically for New England, Lord, and we pray for an incredible revival in New England. We pray that there would be, that the gospel would permeate every single state, every single city, every single town, Lord. Father, we pray that you would soften the hard soil of New England, that you would give people a receptivity to the gospel, that they would be eager to hear the message of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would pierce the heart, Lord, with the gospel and draw many people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are in the military, and we pray for their families. Father, we pray that you may sustain your people. We pray that you may be, that you may be with them and help them. Give them the humility to be able to continue to serve, to take orders from those above them, and we pray that you would give them also all that they need to manage those who are below them. We pray for their families. We pray for the grace that they need, the strength that they need, for the peace that they also need. We pray that as that they would continue to draw near to you as a family unit, and that you would draw near to them and that you would continue to encourage them and center them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for all these things. We lift them up to you, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you are more than able to do far more than all that we can even imagine. And we pray now the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So if you would please turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we will pick it up in verse 1 and read down to verse 32. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, 
went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They entered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you, have, you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and caught off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may be with us as we as we seek to learn and understand from this passage, help us to see Christ, fix our eyes upon him, and help us through your spirit to know how to respond to this passage and that we may seek to apply it in our hearts with that heart of humility. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Secrets are hard to keep. 
Well, you know this. I know this. If you ever try to keep a secret for very long, it's hard to keep it a secret until it eventually comes out. It may be through your own lips the secret comes out. There was one person that many of us, if not all of us, are familiar with who had tried to keep a secret for a long time, but he couldn't. And that is the legendary composer Beethoven. Beethoven tried to keep a secret to himself, a secret that he considered to be his greatest weakness. And only at first a few close friends and family members knew about this secret until eventually it came out. And you cannot help, that, but this secret cannot help but come out in the open because at the time Beethoven was a pretty well-known composer making music and playing music in public. And so it's hard not to notice that somebody who is such a public figure as Beethoven immediately come to a kind of a reclusive living. And that secret that he was trying to keep to himself is, is the increasing loss of hearing. Eventually, that word got out, and that wasn't a secret for very long. But yet, many people during that time, and even to this day, consider his greatest works of symphony or greatest work of music to be composed after he had discovered his loss of hearing and that became worse, right? And so it's, how is it even possible for somebody to compose music when they cannot listen to the music that they're composing? And it's actually not that difficult if, one, you're a genius like Beethoven. But secondly, if you understand that music isn't just about listening. Music is a language, and there's structure, there's forms, there's rules to the language of music. And so when you understand that, well, then you can still compose music, even though you cannot, as in Beethoven's case, you cannot hear it very well. And so he continued to compose music. Heaven itself is an orchestra that plays a symphony here in John chapter 18, the events of John chapter 18. But you don't have to have an ear to be able to listen to the music of John 18. You just have to understand the language of John 18 to be able to understand what it's trying to communicate. Most symphonies have a four-movement form. So going from one to two to three to four. And we see kind of that four-movement form here in John chapter 18. And John 18 begins with the first movement, which is a secret arrest. So, on the cover of the night, or actually, backtrack a little bit. So, John chapter 13 up until here in John 18 is one single event. So, from Jesus washing the disciples' feet to the conversations to the teachings to the high priestly prayer, and up until this point is all one single event happening in the same night. And if you remember, it was in the cover of the night, in a secret, in a private place, that Jesus revealed to his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Right, you and I both know that that was Judas Iscariot. And once Jesus made that revelation to the disciples, well, then Judas immediately left. They're still not understanding what exactly happened at that moment. And so here is Judas, who's come in the middle of the night in secrecy with a band of soldiers showing himself to be the treacherous person that he was. Now, the passage also tells us that Jesus went to pray with his disciples in a specific garden, a garden that he met with his disciples often. And so Judas, having 
done life with Jesus for about three years, he also would have been familiar with this particular garden. It was probably a favorite place for Jesus to go to and pray, to go and pray at. And so you see, even though right, it was the nighttime, it was time to go to sleep, Jesus did not go to sleep. Jesus did not command his disciples to go home and go to bed. But instead, he decided to take his disciples into this particular garden where he surely knew that Judas would find him. What this reveals is that Jesus was intentional about the location. Judas would be familiar with it, and he knew that. And it shows that Jesus is in complete control of the narrative. Judas is not the one in control. Jesus is in control of the entire event. And so the only reason Judas was able to find Jesus was because Jesus wanted to be found. Now, surely it's a surprise to the disciples to find one of their own friends to be standing not with them, but standing against them and betraying Jesus into the hands of the world. Sometimes the greatest, the greatest villains are those who are one's friends. In the Gospels, Jesus warns about the cost of, of, of discipleship. That for many people who decide to follow Jesus with their, with their life, that it will be sort of a division, a sword brought into the household, that fathers will deliver children over or that children will deliver parents over because of the, they're following Jesus Christ. Right, such is the case with Judas, who comes not only with Jewish temple officers, but he also comes with Roman soldiers. So Judas had chosen to stand in league with the rest of the world and not with Jesus Christ. So what we see in the garden is a scene of two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And instead of fighting against the kingdom of the world, Jesus instead willingly submits himself, offers himself up to the kingdom of the world. And in this way, we see the identity of Christ revealed. So in the cover of the night, a secret arrest is attempted. And in this way, the brilliant light of the identity of Jesus Christ is revealed. First, when Jesus identifies himself, right, so the intending to verify that the person before them is Jesus of Nazareth, the soldier asks, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he. And something strange happens, whether it's a supernatural occurrence or not, probably a supernatural occurrence, but it says that when he identified himself, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground, which is the right response. Because this isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is Jesus, the Christ. This is Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that they fell down is the right way that anybody should respond to the presence of the King. So then in this way, his identity is revealed. And then Jesus offered himself to the soldiers, right? As long as his disciples can go free. And it's at that moment as we read that Peter draws his sword and begins to attack and even cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers or one of the officers of the Jewish temple. Now it's kind of, I don't know about you, but it's kind of remarkable to me that there wasn't a battle at that point. 
Because, I mean, there's Roman soldiers here. They're not peaceable fellows. And at that point, they had justifiable cause for attacking back. But they don't. Instead, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword back in the sheath. And the whole thing ends peaceably. To me, divine sovereignty is at work. Because otherwise, if the Roman soldiers started to duke it out, Peter's life probably would have been lost. And many of the other disciples, perhaps. But it tells us that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, that he will not lose a single one of those who are his. No, it's speaking eternally, that his people will not be lost eternally. They will not be lost to the devil, but it's still the fulfillment of what Jesus had said before. He's not going to lose a single one of those who are his. So then Jesus is arrested and taken to Annas. So then that's the end of the first movement. So then the second movement of the symphony, a secret trial. So Christ is first sent to Annas, who wasn't technically the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the high priest. But Annas still had sort of a a high priest-like influence over the people. And also had a patriarchal influence because history and tradition tells us that Annas actually had five sons who had all at some point in the life functioned as high priest, and now he has a son-in-law who's a high priest. And so people actually revered Annas more than the other high priests. And so Annas wanted to question Jesus. Now, John also reminds us in the passage that Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, if you remember, he made a, a profound statement that it is expedient for one man to die in order to spare the rest. Now, if you understand the Old Testament, right, the, high, the office of a high priest was incredibly important. And the high priest was the intermediary, in a sense, between God and the people. And not only that, but one of the most important functions of a high priest was to make atonement for the sins of God's people, right, to offer up a sacrifice one day a year to atone for the sins of God's people. And in a way... Annas and Caiaphas were actually performing their, 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 their duties as high priests, though not in the way that you and I would understand it. They were seeking to deliver a man to appease the wrath of the Romans because they feared the Romans. They feared that if Jesus generated a large enough movement, movement well, then the Romans would be in fear and to try to just quench the movement and get rid of the temple and everything else. But you and I understand that Jesus wasn't delivered to the Romans to appease the wrath of the Romans, but Jesus was delivered over to God to appease the wrath of God so that we may be spared and saved from our sins. But before this deliverance could take place, Annas needed to question Jesus. So Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples, about his doctrine. Now what he's not doing, he's not providing a fair trial. It's not a innocent or proven guilty, but it's a guilty, so let's prove it. And Annas could not simply deliver Jesus over to the Roman governors, right? He needed to, he needed probable cause. He needed to be able to present the case before the governor in political overtones so that the governor would be compelled to take up the case leading up to an execution, and then in answering Annas' questions, my Jesus isn't, isn't shy, isn't secretive 
I mean, he doesn't directly answer this question, but instead he directs and is to the world. He says, ask the world. So if you've read the Gospel of John, if you've been following along in the Gospel of John, then you know that Jesus did not have a secret private ministry. Right from his turning water into wine at the wedding feast to raising a dead man back to life. I mean, he had a very public ministry. He taught out in the open. And he wasn't secretive about who he was. All of these things were out in the open. So if Annas has any questions, well, then Jesus directed them to the world. Look at the world. Look at what people are saying about me, and they will answer your questions. Ask the Samaritans, for example. Remember the story of the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman that Jesus came to and would reveal himself to. And then she would go on and tell the townsfolk, and they would also come rushing back to Jesus. And then in John 4.42, they said to the Samaritan woman, the crowds, the villagers, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Ask the officer who had his son healed, who was at the point of death. Ask the crowds who followed Jesus, the, the massive crowd that Jesus fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. John chapter 7, 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? That is the religious teachers are seeking to kill. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Go back and talk to the man that was born blind and see what he has to say about me. John chapter 10, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of a man who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Speaking about the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. Ask the people right, who witnessed the resurrection or the reanimation of Lazarus who was in the tomb dead for four days. Right, you don't have to try very hard to learn about Jesus. The world will bear witness to his identity. Now, of course, many people are, have their misinterpretations of who Jesus is. But at the very least, if you ask the world, you will come to the conclusion that the man standing before you who is given this unfair trial is not worthy of death. So then as the symphony of the story continues, then it progresses to the third movement, and then we have a shift in scene. So thirdly, a secret kept. Now, Peter's denial of Jesus Christ is something that you would expect and also something you wouldn't expect. You expect it because, well, Jesus foretold it. But it's also something you wouldn't expect because, remember, just moments ago, Peter was standing with Jesus drew out his sword and attempted to protect and defend Jesus. And yet, moments later, here he is, denying the Lord Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. As shocking as this might sound, Peter is not that far off from becoming a Judas. Now, may his actions be a caution for us all. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. The Scriptures also says, Let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. The Scriptures command us to examine ourselves. It cautions us. It's not saying to doubt your own salvation, but it's, call, it's a call to be introspective and to make sure that you are walking in the faith, to make sure that you are bearing the fruit of salvation, that you are walking in repentance, because any one of us can deny the Lord Jesus. Any one of us at any moment, given the right situation, can walk away from Jesus. And so we have to be in the discipline of examining ourselves to make sure that we are still walking in the faith. Are you continuing to battle and resist and put to death temptation and sin in your life? Are you bearing the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on and so forth? Are you reconciling with those that for whatever reason have offended you? Seeking peace and maintaining unity with the body of Christ? Are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of who the Lord Jesus is? Are you growing in the holiness that the Lord requires of us all? Now, the difference between Judas and Peter is that when Judas recognized that what he had done was an error and what we would also call a grievous sin, he went and hung himself. Peter, on the other hand, when he realized what he had done, he was filled with sorrow. And we know later that Peter was restored. The scriptures teach us that godly sorrow produces repentance. That is when you understand the weight of your sin, when you acknowledge that you have sinned against God and all sin is against God, when you are filled with the shame that comes with sinning against God. That leads to the proper steps of repentance, of turning away from sinning and turning to Jesus Christ. And that also is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Now, to this point in Peter's denial, we also see that Christ's identity is revealed. And we also see something else that we should, that we would do well to remember. Even as Peter tried to keep his close affiliation with Jesus Christ hidden, in this moment, Christ's identity is still revealed. Peter's denial functioned as a witness to the authenticity of the person of Jesus Christ. Because Christ foretold Peter's denial, and then a rooster would crow after that third time, it shows the reader that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Further, what this incident reveals about Jesus is that nothing is hidden from his sight. If you read Luke's account of Peter's denial, the moment that he denied the Lord the third time and the rooster crowed, it tells us in Luke's account that at that moment, Jesus turned his face and looked at Peter. And Peter looked at Jesus. At that moment, they locked eyes. Now, can you imagine what it must be like to lock eyes with Jesus after having denied him three times? And the Lord sees everything. The Lord 
knows your thoughts and my thoughts, knows your actions, knows your words, even the words that you might mutter under your breath that nobody can hear. Now, if, we were, if all those things were, be, were to be laid bare, most certainly we would be ashamed of many of those things. Now, can you imagine having all those, all those sins laid bare and to lock eyes with Jesus? Now, if you've ever been caught doing something you shouldn't do, maybe as a kid, maybe caught by uh, uh, an authority figure or a parent, then you know what that feeling is like. It's not a good feeling. Christ sees everything. He hears everything. The Lord knows your thoughts. But if you know the story of Peter, right, Peter wasn't cast away, but the Lord Jesus still went to him and drew him near to himself. Just think that with our sins laid bare, the Lord Jesus had every, every reason to just get away from us. But instead, he drew near to us, died on the cross for us because he loved us. And even now, right, as a Christian, we still sin at times. And he still does not mean to draw away from us. He still means to draw us to himself. And we draw near to him when we confess our sins to the Lord and trust in his forgiveness. And we have that kind of relationship and that access to the Lord that he would still embrace us and accept us. Not that he accepts our sin, but when we see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to respond in the appropriate manner. And that is that we want to turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ and have a deeper and more intimate relationship with him. The Bible teaches that all of the works, all of our works will be judged before the Lord. Right? Especially for anyone who is an unbeliever. Right, and maybe, maybe you're watching via live stream. The Bible teaches the Lord will judge our works. That even what you might consider to be the smallest sin is enough to be judged by the Lord and enough to be eternally separated from the Lord to a place of what the Bible describes as outer darkness and the gnashing of teeth. that even a lifetime, even an eternal lifetime of good works cannot even pay for that, what you consider to be the smallest of sin in your life. But the good news of the gospel is that we can have forgiveness, that you can receive forgiveness and have a clean slate and be considered innocent and righteous and justified by believing and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, by committing your life to him and repenting of sin. And then you will have eternal life with the Lord. So then we move to this final movement in the symphony. A secret made spectacle. So finally, Caiaphas and the religious authorities end this secrecy and bring Jesus out into the open, just as the, the darkness gives way to the, to the morning sun. They deliver over, Jesus over to the governor. And they're intended to make a spectacle out of Jesus. They want a public execution. 
Now, it's pretty ironic and hypocritical because it tells us they would not enter into the governor's headquarters because there was a Passover celebration. They wanted to celebrate the Passover, and for them to enter the Gentile territory or Gentile headquarters would, be, would, mean ceremonially be, would, be, would cause them to be ceremonially unclean. And yet they're willing to bloody their hands by delivering an innocent man over to death. And not just an innocent man, but the Son of God. And so then we have the conclusion of the symphony, but typically symphonies don't end on such a sour note. They don't end so negatively. They don't end so stark. But it actually, it actually doesn't. When you read verse 32, verse 32 tells us this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So as I said earlier, Jesus is in control of the narrative. This was all according to plan. He who controls the narrative controls the ending. And Jesus is in absolute control of everything that is happening. It appears as utter defeat. But the fact that the section concludes in this way, in verse 32, hints to us that the story isn't over, that it's far from over. The one in control of the narrative is also considered to be an evildoer, but you and I both know that he is far from it. But this is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Right? You and I know the truth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ came into the world not by becoming a political or religious leader, but became, he came into the world by becoming sin for us and dying for our sins so that we might be spared. Right, John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he, came, that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. By believing in him, we have been spared from the wrath of God. We have been declared innocent, justified, righteous. In the very beginning, the world was engulfed in darkness, but God spoke light into the darkness, and God has spoken again light into the darkness of the world by sending his son Jesus Christ, who is the light of man, so that all those who are see the light and believe in the light are drawn to the light and they are saved by the light. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved us. And for that, we worship him. Now, this morning, you've heard from several points, a few different points of application to examine yourselves, make sure that we are in the faith, continue to growing in the holiness that the Lord requires of us. But I think here at the end of this symphony, I think the most appropriate response is to worship. Because even as Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and we see his brilliant light in the, in the incarnation, as we see his brilliant light in his teaching and his miracles, and we also see it in this secret trial, and the secret arrest, and as we see it, as we will continue to see it, as he takes the beating and the punishment that we deserved, right, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that brilliant light becoming brighter and brighter and brighter. 
And so I'm going to pray for us. And then we will continue to worship the Lord through a couple songs. And may we respond to the Lord. May we respond to the gospel. May we respond to the light of Jesus Christ by just joining our hearts and our voices together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for giving us your son who died for us. Even in the darkness of the night that we read about in the events of John 18, we see that the darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you. We thank you for shining this light into our hearts. And we want to glorify you, to worship you in this moment, and to worship you for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship.
As we sing this next song, this is a little bit of a new one, but just listen to the structure of the song. We remind ourselves of the truth. We proclaim that praise to the Lord, and then we apply that truth to our hearts and our lives. We remind ourselves that Jesus is better. There is no other. There is no other. So sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. rock I will stand. Glory, glory. In glory, glory, we have no other King but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring. We crown Him Lord of all. of sincerely. My 
life is hidden neath heaven's shadows your crimson flood covers me
has done for us, the example he has set, and just the glorious picture of our salvation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Brothers and sisters, go in peace, living in the love of of Jesus in your heart and in your life, allowing that to come out and permeate the atmosphere of your workplaces, your homes, and your communities. You are dismissed until we return again, Lord willing.